In this episode of Ask Paul Kirtley, we're going to be talking all about water, water purification, water sterilization, what are the issues, how do we make it safe? Lots of questions about that, all being answered in this episode. And I'm back on the Ask Paul Kirtley log. Welcome, welcome to episode 39 of Ask Paul Kirtley. It's the question and answer show where I answer your questions about wilderness bushcraft, survival skills and outdoor life. And as I said at the beginning there, this is all about water. Uh, these shows are always made up of questions that people asked. And I noticed in going through questions recently in putting questions into the different episodes and I do that fairly randomly I have to say I try and include an Instagram or a Twitter question I try and include a speak pipe question or two and I try and include a couple of email questions just to keep the balance but other than that if there's any theme that comes out of the shows it tends to be by accident but what I did notice a little while ago when I was doing my last sorting of questions I'd been running courses in July and August and I was behind with the questions or I mean it's just natural isn't it that you're away emails come in messages come in I was just sorting through them reading through the questions putting them into different episodes and I noticed there were quite a lot of questions about water there were some outstanding from before that there were some that had come in over the summer and I thought right actually let's have a water episode so that's what this is and we've got some good questions and there is a bit of an overlap between them, but hopefully it all meshes together. It welds together over the course of the whole episode. I'll just bring up the questions. Now, I should say there are some resources on my blog already about water purification in particular there's an article about the five contaminants that we need to be concerned about and just as a quick reminder they are the three different types of pathogens pathogenic organisms so protozoa bacteria and viruses and then we've also got to consider chemical pollutants heavy metals pesticides that type of pollution um, and then we also need to consider suspended matter and that could be decaying organic matter it could be suspended mineral uh, um, material stuff that makes the water look cloudy that's generally grouped together and called turbidity and if you want to learn more about those things in that article on my blog you'll learn about protozoa bacteria viruses chemical pollutants and turbidity. So go over there, there'll be a link in the show notes. Go over to paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 39 in the show notes there, underneath the video, underneath the, the uh, audio will be some links and one of those links will be to that article. There's also an article on there about using coarse filtration to remove turbidity, particularly in the form of Millbank bags. And 
there's an article there. Now, Milbank bags are actually quite difficult to get hold of now. They used to be issued to British military personnel and they are very effective. You can sometimes still get them on eBay, but they're all surplus. They're all coming out of old stock. They're not being manufactured anymore. The material that they're made from isn't made anymore either. But there is a company um, that is making an analog of that. So they went back to the original mill that made the original material for the Milbank bags and are making a Milbank type bag, a water filter bag, and that's called the Brown Bag. And look out for more details on my blog about that soon. But onto the questions. Okay, so there's some background material there if you want, which you can refer to. More on my blog soon about specific methodologies in particular the brown bag, but let's have a look at some questions. Okay, first question is about Milbank bags. So in that context, if you wanna know more about Milbank bags, there's a link on my blog to that. Okay, so this is a question from Wellsby Roots, Dave Wellsby. Dave's question is, hey Paul, I was wondering if you could talk about the advantages or disadvantages, if any, between a bandana and a Milbank bag in regards to water filtering, best regard, it's Dave. And that was from Instagram. And yeah, so the idea is really the same, Dave. You're trying to filter out some of the particulate matter that is suspended in the water. And I guess that begs the question, why do you want to do that? Well, there's a couple of reasons why you might want to remove the suspended matter. First off is that in and of itself, bits of stuff floating around in the water can upset your stomach. It can irritate your stomach lining, irritate the cilia in your stomach lining. It can give you diarrhea. It can cause problems with your stomach and your intestines and give you um, an unpleasant time. So that is a reason to remove it in itself, whether that is mineral um, material coming out of, say, a glacier, and that could be all that's in there. There might be, it might be very clean other than that, but that can be enough to upset your stomach. Um, so you wanna be removing that. And of course, cloudy looking water, again, the particles in there, regardless of what else might be attached to them, we'll come on to that in a second, can irritate your stomach. It can also make it taste fairly unpleasant if it's um, degrading organic matter, for example, you know, decaying leaf litter or, or stuff that's decaying at the bottom of the water that is being churned up and is in is in there or dirt you know it's not going to taste good even if it's sterile so first off you want to remove that for those reasons the other reason is that when you think about pathogens particularly bacteria they're often attached to dirt in the water and so just by removing the dirt you're going to remove those pathogens now a filter bag, a Milbank bag, or, or even a bandana, none of those are going to remove um, pathogens in and of themselves. All of those pathogenic organisms are by definition microscopic, and therefore you need a microscope by definition is what I mean. So they're microscopic, and by definition you need a microscope to see them. So even if the water looks perfectly clear, it could well still be pathogenic organisms floating around in there and putting it through a Milbank bag or a bandana is not going to remove them. But removing the dirt that some of them might be attached to 
is a good first step in dealing with them, particularly if you're dealing with chemicals, um, putting chemicals in the water to sterilize the water because what can happen if the water is overly dirty, some chemical treatments, and in particular chlorine, will not work properly. It will attach itself to the organic matter that's floating around and it won't be available to kill the pathogenic organisms. Um, not that it works particularly well on protozoa anyway, it doesn't work on protozoa, but even with iodine, which works better on things like giardia, um, although not particularly well on cryptosporidium, which is one of the harder to kill ones, um, it might not be able to get to those protozoa or those bacteria or the viruses because they are in the dirt. It's just harder to get to them. So again, if you remove that dirt in the first place, it's not an issue. So there are multiple reasons you want to be removing the dirt. Even if you're going to boil, if you can, um, you know, it will be sterilized by the heat, but you've still got the issue of that particulate matter irritating your stomach. So always remove as much as you can. Now, a Milbank bag is ideal, it's very fine, and it will remove a lot of particulate matter from water, leaving it pretty clear. But you're not necessarily always going to have one of those. So you could use a bandana, but bandanas tend not to be either as thick or as densely woven as a Milbank bag. Milbank bags are made of quite densely woven canvas. And so you're gonna get more material going through more particulate material going through a bandana than you are going through a millbank bag. You could also use a trouser leg, for example, in a, in a push. If you didn't have anything, you had dirty water, you needed to filter it, take your trousers off, tie a knot in the bottom of one of the trouser legs, pull water in, let it run out the bottom. You're going to get at least some of the larger silt and larger particulate matter left in the trousers, it will be left in there and the water will run more clear through. So there are ways of dealing with it. Um, the finer the material, the better. So the advantage of a Milbank bag is it's designed for purpose. It's gonna remove a lot of material. Um, it's densely woven, it's thick, it's densely woven. It's gonna remove a lot of that silt and, and particulate matter that maybe a bandana would let through because it's not quite as finely woven. Next question, I notice there's another one about Milbank bags. And I, I'm not sure whether this is serious or not. This is from Terry. And he said, hi, Paul, I've been using my Milbank bag for my herbal teas. <laughs> is it okay or wise to put boiling water in them? I was thinking of crushing up some rose hips and using the tight weave of the bag to catch those tiny little hairs. Just wondered what you thought. You have saved me, you have helped me with lots of good info please keep up the good work many thanks terry well i quite like the idea of using a millbank bag as a massive tea bag um, just putting stuff in there putting hot water and letting it drip out um i can't see a reason why that wouldn't work um you know you might you, you're going to end up with a lot of stuff in there um you know sort of but then you're going to end up with a lot of stuff in there anyway if you um if you put dirty water through i mean if you've got crushed up fruit in there though is that going to be hard to clean is it going to go moldy i don't know i mean i can't see an issue with it i, I don't see it's any different to pouring you know when you strain 
uh, jams through muslin, uh, for example, to make jellies, those type of things. It's the same principle, it'll work. Um, so yes, but it's very unorthodox use of a Millbank bag. <laughs> Please send me a photograph of you making your herbal tea in a Millbank bag. The one thing I would say, actually, I hadn't thought about this before. As I say, I choose these questions, but I don't think about them particularly before because I like to go through the thinking process while I'm answering them. Um, if you're using your Millbank bag to clean water, i.e. remove uh, turbidity from water before you boil it, um, you're going to need to sterilise your Millbank bag before you use it for, it, for, for making teas because the water that's dripping off that bag might not be clean. Um, and yes, it will go on there boiling, and so the water itself is going to be clean, but if there's still bacteria um, and other things being harboured on the outside of that, then there's an outside chance, I think it's a slim chance, but there's an outside chance that that will end up in your drink not having been properly sterilised, so maybe you just need to be a little bit careful about that. All right. Which one next? Uh, Millbank bag for tea, we've done that. Stary pen for, there's two questions about stary pens. Um, and I think they're pretty much the same question. Um, this one is from Stephen Heppel. And his question is, hello Paul, hope you're well. Just getting back into backpacking and bushcraft and have come across the ultraviolet treatment pen called Stary pen. It comes in various versions. I like the idea for an on the fly as it kills everything in the water and will treat one liter of drinking water in about 90 seconds with no chemicals, etc. I've still got a ceramic filter and obviously boil as well. It has never failed on me and I carry spare batteries. Would like to know if you have tried the SteriPen and your thoughts, please, if you have any. Many thanks, Steve. And I think there's a similar question here from not so long ago from by Twitter from Richard Marples. And his question, uh, so this was just after the Bushcraft Show. Um, Hi Paul, good to see you at the Bushcraft Show. What's your thought on SteriPen? Well, SteriPen is um, something which you put into water it emits ultraviolet light and the ultraviolet light um, deactivates pathogenic organisms and um, going back to what i was saying about the five different types of uh, contaminants and in particular the three types of pathogenic organisms you've got um, you've got protozoa that's things like giardium cryptosporidium you've got bacteria you've got viruses and um, Cryptosporidium and protozoa are actually quite hard to kill with chemical treatments. Um, they die at a higher temperature in terms of boiling than many other pathogenic organisms. Um, they're quite uh, resistant to alkali or acid um, conditions. They're quite resistant to even relative lack of, of moisture for a given amount of time. Um, they have this hard shell around them which allows them to survive out of the host's body for quite some time. So their typical cycle is that they infect the host, they cause the host to um, have an upset stomach that produces, and, and they reproduce in the, in the stomach, they have an upset stomach and there's lots of vomiting, potentially, there's certainly diarrhea and um, 
then you get those those cysts being spread into the environment which are picked up again by other animals and so on and so forth that's how it works and those cysts that come out are hard to kill um, because they have this like carapace around them and uh, that's what makes them quite impervious to a lot of treatments or levels of treatment that will kill other um, pathogenic organisms so for example giardia um, it takes about um, 8 milligrams per litre of iodine to kill giardia, whereas it only takes about 1 milligram per litre to kill anything else, any bacteria. So it takes about 8 times the dosage to definitely kill it. Um, and so the, the thinking was initially with ultraviolet pens that that would be the same, that they would also be quite resistant to ultraviolet. But it turns out that um, because they're bigger organisms, it's easier to to kill them because there's more light incident on them and it seems to damage their um i think i can't remember if it's a dna or the rna i can't remember but basically it damages them sufficiently uh the mitochondria and it kills them off and and that's and that's that and it actually it it seems to kill them off more easily than some types of bacteria so that's good um the thing is though with ultraviolet it's light and there are different types of ultraviolet light and some of them are more effective in killing um, organisms than others. Um, now, ultraviolet light doesn't kill organisms immediately. I mean, we get ultraviolet light on us all the time when we're, when we're out and it's the concentration and the type of ultraviolet which has an effect. And so you have to have the right type in the right amount and it also needs to reach the um, the organism in the high enough uh, energy level to to kill it and clearly you know we've all heard about holes in the ozone layer and um, higher incidences of skin cancer and those sorts of things and that's certainly the case you know the atmosphere does a good job of filtering out a lot of types of ultraviolet and amounts of ultraviolet to prevent over overly um, damaging our skin and and other organisms as well so um, if it was just a case of some ultraviolet hitting um, the organism to kill it, that would be very, very simple. It would also mean there probably wouldn't be any life on the planet. So if you think about it, if you have, um, if you have uh, water, like a pond with the sun shining on it, if it was just a case of ultraviolet light hit, needing to hit the water to kill, um, the uh, the organisms in there we could just drink the water and we, there wouldn't be anything in there to, to cause us a problem in the first place so it's not quite as simple as just having some ultraviolet light being incident on the water and the one of the key things is the water has to be not too cloudy because if the cloudier it is the less the ultraviolet light penetrates and it's the same you know if you go diving or snorkeling in cloudy water you don't need to go very far down before there isn't much sunlight coming through whereas if it's really crystal clear you can see the bottom you know meters and meters below and as you swim down the sunlight's coming down so the the turbidity in the water is really really important so you still need to either choose really clean water clean looking water in the first place or filter out the the turbidity using something like a millbank bag that's best practice also if you read the instructions on those things they also don't like you to put it into bottles that are too big because clearly the bigger the diameter of the bottle when you put the ultraviolet um, light source in the bottle um, the further it has to go to reach all the water so there are some limitations but 
the theory is, is, is spot on. I think the danger, um, if you don't apply the technology properly, is that it might not treat everything as well as it should do. But that's the case with any treatment, that if you don't apply it properly, it doesn't work. These are not magic things. These are not magic bullets. These are not magic buttons that once you press them, everything's sorted. You have to apply them properly. And the only other remark I'd make about anything that requires batteries, you say in your question, Stephen says in his question, um, that he carries spare batteries and that's fine but clearly that's one of the limitations of something that is electrical in its uh, energy source that you have to um, you have to uh, make sure you have enough batteries with you um, and I know people will write in and say oh yes Paul but you can just use sunlight yes you can but it doesn't work as well as the pens because the ultraviolet the, the ultraviolet light is different there, remember there are different types of ultraviolet light also you have to have a clear bottle, you have to have water that's clear, and you have to leave the bottle um, in the sun for quite some time. And the bigger the bottle, the longer you have to leave it. And beyond a certain size bottle, it doesn't work very well. So yes, you can use sunlight to sterilize water, but it has to be visibly clean, has to be in a small bottle, has to be in a clear bottle, and best practice is to leave it out in strong sunlight for 24 hours. Um, at least 24 hours where it's had a lot of sunshine in that 24 hours. In most hiking and camping situations that isn't going to be practical. It might work in a survival situation where you're fixed in one location and it's sunny but other than that it's not reliable. So the, the SteriPens do work but you have to apply them properly. Right, next question. Herbicides and pesticides, let's do that one. Okay, this is from Delema Ford. And the question is, in your video, does boiling make water safe to drink? That's another resource which I will link to in the show notes. That's a video um, that I made quite a few years ago now. Um, I was wondering about herbicides, pesticides and heavy metals in the water. Is there a way that removes these contaminants? So. Yes, water um, which contains those contaminants will not be made any safer by boiling, um, typically. If anything, it may slightly concentrate them, but only to the extent that the volume of the water is reduced by boiling a little bit and you'll have the same amount of chemicals in there. But um, yes, that's in wilderness situations, unless there is some sort of pollution from mining, historical mining or current mining or similar remote um, and isolated industrialized use of the landscape that has polluted the water or the water table, you're unlikely to have that as an issue. Also in closer to home you may have, um, if you're near to agriculture, you may have um, runoff that is concentrated in pesticides or herbicides or fertilizers and that can be an issue. And if you are camping regularly in an area near farmland, it might be worth just having a chat with the farmer to see what he's putting on the field. If you're near to, um, if you're near to an organic farm, it's not so much of an issue. You just have to worry about um, organic matter getting into the water, but then that's resolved by boiling and filtering and the other methods that we can, we can use. Um, you can um, also have a bit of a think about whether or not it's mainly 
uh, grazing, whether it's cows and sheep and other livestock, or whether it's arable and there's a lot of uh, maybe more concentrated use of things like pesticides, herbicides, and, uh, and fertilizers. So you can have a think about that as well. And whether or not the farm is organic, that is something to, to think about. And then of course, you can have a conversation with the uh, farmer as well, um, if that's a particular concern. Now, some, uh, some of those chemicals that we talked about will bind to organic material. So again, to the extent that you can remove turbidity, uh, suspended organic matter, then you're reducing um, those uh, particles that contain the chemical pollution. But there may still be uh, chemicals and traces that are dissolved or too fine to be removed by your filter, which may still be in the clear looking water. You can use an activated carbon filter, and I know there's a couple of other questions about um, carbon, or at least one question about carbon filters, which may be answered by this question. Um, activated carbon will remove a lot of those pesticides, chemicals, heavy metals. I know pesticides are chemicals, but you know, chemical pollution, pesticides in particular, people often worry about heavy metals. Um, similar technology to gas masks in that sense. I used to have a filter that had a, an activated carbon filter in it, and that worked um, to remove those chemicals as well as um, other suspended matter. It also had um, an iodine treatment element to it, and um, it was a two-stage process which worked very, very well and covered all the bases, and it's the only thing I've ever had that did cover all the bases in one small portable unit. That was made by a company called Premac, who were based not far from where I run courses. But unfortunately, there were some changes to the law with regards to what chemicals could be used in certain types of situations. And unfortunately, that product had to be withdrawn. So that is um, one that I think I'm coming towards the end of my replacement uh, cartridges for, and I'll have to stop using it, which is a shame. But there are other methodologies, there are other activated carbon filters which you can get. Um, and I think the risks are somewhat overblown. If you're going to relatively remote places, um, you're not going to have a problem with high concentrations of, uh, of fertilizers, of pesticides, of herbicides. It's only really if you're, if you're drinking water out of ditches that is running off farmland. And if you are, then as I say, go back to my previous, my previous advice. And if it is a particular concern, you'll need to seek out a filtration system which has activated carbon in it to remove as much of those things as possible. Um, there was another question about carbon. Water purification recarbon filter, I saw that one. This is from Andrew Rush. And his question is, hi Paul, my tropical fish tank has an activated charcoal filter in it. Would this type of activated charcoal be any good as means of filtering chemicals? Say maybe with a Millbank filter bag. So um, Andrew, I think what you're suggesting there is putting the carbon or the charcoal in the Millbank bag. And while that may well remove, that would again would be an orthodox use of a Millbank bag, it's not what it's designed for, um, but it might work quite well in terms of removing particulate matter and removing um, some of the uh, chemical pollutants where they present. Uh, but it wouldn't be a very regulated process if you're just stuffing, and I, and I say this in a slightly loose, you know, if you're just placing 
activated carbon or charcoal into a bag and then pouring water through it. It's not a very regulated chemical process. Um, and it may be the case that some of the residual amounts would get through that whole thing. It wouldn't necessarily be filtered enough. Um, you want to have a, a more uh, consistently applied process, let's put it that way. But would it do something? Yes, because you, you can create improvised uh, filters which contain charcoal and moss and sand that will remove a lot of particulate and chemical materials. You can use an old drinks bottle, cut the, cut the bottom off it, and then you put those materials inside so that it's removing um, it's removing a lot of the particulate matter and it drips through and you can find umpteen different methods um, and orders of doing that on the internet um, and it does work but again it's not a very regulated process it's it's dependent upon to a certain extent chance I think you understand where I'm coming from and I think that's all the questions because oh no there's one here sorry i missed this one springs this is from alan metcalf and alan asks hi paul i'm a big fan of your blog and use soundcloud a lot while driving and often fall asleep to your ask paul curtly episodes on the night hopefully not when you're driving alan <laughs> that sounds quite dangerous <laughs> And he says, not that I'm saying your voice sends me off to a deep sleep or anything, you understand. I'm not sure what you're saying, Alan. As long as you're not saying you fall asleep when you're driving, that's fine. I've been doing more hiking and camping lately and wanted to ask you about Ordnance Survey maps and more specifically wells and springs shown on the maps. Can you drink straight from these wells and springs or would I still need to boil this water beforehand? I have been considering a Sawyer Mini or similar pure purification device coupled with an activated charcoal filter to remove pesticides and heavy metals. It would be great to plot a route taking in a couple of these natural water sources rather than carry this extra kit. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Many thanks, Alan. Well, I think unless you have particular knowledge, um, local knowledge that a spring is safe to drink from, like there are a couple of springs not far from here actually, um, one on the other side of the valley in the little valley over and one at the top end of a valley that feeds into this area here, um, both of which have springs in them, both of which you can drink from as long as you get close enough to the source. And, that, and that's the thing. You don't need to go very far downstream before you've got you know, deer walking in, in the little stream. You've got um, material, plant material, leaves falling in, that's decaying. There's bacteria growing on that. There's organic matter, it's bubbling. So yes, the water itself may well be all right to drink, but it's whether or not you can extract it before it has been contaminated. And I, I'd say that in a, in, a, in a wider sense of the world. I don't mean it's necessarily badly contaminated, but it's not going to be on the surface, a few meters down, it's not going to be as clean as it was just before it bubbled up from the surface. So it depends, really, it depends. Um, 
in terms of wells, wells are a slightly more iffy one because it, I don't, you don't always know where the water's coming from. It may just have been dug down into the water table. There can be contamination of the water table. There can be, it can be quite stagnant water sitting down at the bottom of a well. Sometimes there can be quite a lot of water coming into wells. Other times, you know, you hear of wells running dry. Um, that water has not been replenished quite quickly. Um, it can be sitting there for a long time. Things can be growing in there, even though there isn't so much light necessarily at the bottom. If it's a deep well, there might not be much light and therefore things might not grow as quickly um, in terms of um, bacteria in particular. But still, uh, you've got algae to consider as well in some circumstances with taking water from, from water that's sitting um, when it's got light on it. So. Um, there are a few things to consider. So I would generally, unless you know otherwise, from somebody who is a reliable uh, and trustworthy source who knows about that particular location, I would say best practice is to, uh, is to boil or, um, or treat in some other way. Um, particularly if it isn't running very fast or it looks at all stagnant. Um, you can't tell by looking at water whether it's safe or not. As I say right back at the beginning, the pathogenic organisms which might be in the water are microscopic and therefore by definition you need a microscope to see them and you know, my concern is that you get from, you know, I can't say that all springs are safe to drink from. I can't say that all wells are safe to drink from. That it could be a small amount of water that's bubbling up into quite a stagnant, otherwise stagnant pool that's got deer going in for drinks. It could have dogs jumping in it because the dogs have been walked nearby. Um, you don't, you know, birds shitting in it. You know, you've got all of this life going on around it. As soon as it hits the surface, life is happening to it. You've got bacteria, you've got algae, you've got organic matter falling in, you've got animals in, you've got insects in, you know, you've got all sorts of things going on. So to generalize, it, you can't say. Also, it depends where the water's coming from. It might be coming off the surface somewhere into an aquifer being pushed along, heat, the, the bedrock um, changing or the water hitting something and being forced up to the surface. So you don't know where that water's come from, you don't know how long it's been under the under the surface for and you don't really quite know what's happening to it. I'm just thinking of the two springs that are nearby here. Both of them have kind of got a pool and then it flows out of the pool but that pool's fairly static. It's not flowing very quickly out through there and um, I always choose to at least boil the water. It looks fairly clear as long as you don't scoop up the, the, the bottom of the pool or the stream that runs out of it and kick up a lot of silt. Um, but I, if you scoop out clear looking water, you still can't tell whether it's safe to drink or not because the microorganisms in there are microscopic. You need a microscope to see them. You don't have one with you in your kit. So boil it for best practice. Um, if you're going to use a ceramic filter, for example, that will, will remove some of the larger um, pathogenic organisms. It will remove protozoa, it will remove some of the larger bacteria, but I would still, best practice in areas where there might be a lot of bacteria, I would still put some chlorine in after that. Now, a lot of people don't like the taste of chlorine, and I understand that. So what you can do is to is neutralize the taste of chlorine with vitamin C. Vitamin C will neutralize the taste of chlorine, but also you need to remember that vitamin C also neutralizes the effectiveness of 
chlorine. So you want to mix the chlorine with your water, say in a water bottle, let that have the contact time, let it kill off any bacteria that's left in there after it's been through the filter, and then pour that water, say, into a mug where you're going to put some vitamin C in there. Now, pure vitamin C doesn't taste great either, but you could have, say, a flavoured um, sports drink, like an isotonic sports drink, like an orange flavour that's got vitamin C in it, which will give the water a nice flavour, neutralise the chlorine taste and make it much more pleasant to drink. And also if it's isotonic, it might get into your system faster, depending on your level of hydration as well. Um, the thing not to do though is mix it in the water bottle, which you're then going to treat water with again with chlorine because any residual vitamin C in the bottle will stop the chlorine from working properly. So that's just something else to be mindful of. But to go back to your original question, I can't say in general that all wells and springs are safe to drink from because they likely aren't. Got a right plain Sunday night here. I didn't say where I was. It's Sunday night um, in Sussex, um, September. It's looking quite, uh, or even more autumnal. Don't know if you can see. Actually, the bracken behind me doesn't look as brown as the bracken, bracken here. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just got that Sunday night rush of planes coming into Gatwick Airport. It's not a million miles away from here. It's probably only a few, probably 10 minutes flight from here. And so the planes are coming in um, and we get them, as you know, if you're a regular viewer, um, some of the episodes of this I've recorded down here before. Sometimes it's really quiet. Other times we've got a rush of planes going over and they tend to come over in sort of fives or sixes in in little batches and then you don't get any for a while and then they come through again so something to do with the way that the air traffic control works which i i don't get anyway off topic but i was just uh, didn't want to talk about water over the top of a plane that was making quite a lot of noise right well that is all the questions i had about water i hope that was um useful um, I've got a note here to remind me about the weekly challenge question that Tom Scandian suggested a few weeks ago. Um, thanks for your replies about what you're, what you're working on, what you're working on going from one season into the other, what you're interested in, whether it's fungi or seasonal fruits or winter camping skills or getting your kit sorted for trips in colder weather or whatever it was or vice versa if you're in the, in the southern hemisphere. Um, my question for you this week would be um, what water treatments have you used to make your water safe, if you've ever used any? What water treatment would you like to try but haven't? And what water treatment are you afraid of trying that you somehow, even though you know, you know, objectively, logically it should work, you're concerned about trying it because something in your gut somehow doesn't tell you, like, for example, ultraviolet, you know, you're happy to use a filter, but you're, you, you, you can't see how ultraviolet works. It seems like witchcraft or you really rely on ultraviolet, but you don't trust chemicals. So I'd be interested to know what you've used, if anything, what you really favor and what you're afraid 
of, of using. That would be really interesting. So put that in the comments below this, uh, if you're watching this as a video, so you can leave comments on my blog, you can leave comments on YouTube, or if you're listening to this as an audio file, if you're listening on my blog, again, leave comments below. If you're listening to this on SoundCloud or on, an other on a podcasting platform such as iTunes or the Apple Podcasting app or Stitcher or anywhere else this ends up, then go over to my blog, paulkirtley.co.uk, find episode 39 and leave a comment. That would be super, super appreciated. It'd be interesting to see what people are using and where. Actually, let me know where you use those things typically as well. So maybe you found one thing worked really well in a particular environment that was really efficient. It'd be really good to, to know what everyone's experience is. And again, I'm just gonna keep banging on about um, Instagram. If you can follow me on Instagram, that would be super. Um, as I say, I try and post at least one thing a day where um, it's a little snippet of information could be some tree and plant identification it could be the use of something it could be a little bit about equipment equipment that i'm using equipment that i'm testing um something that i uh, have noticed that day or the day before sometimes i have to sort of wait till i get home to post things because i haven't had phone reception when i posted or um, sometimes just to let you in a little secret I do time the posts a little bit sometimes so I might take a photo on a Saturday or a weekend when I'm out and about and then I'll post it on Monday um, because that's the first opportunity but then that all kind of works out in the um, in the mix but everything is pretty much current you know give it give or take a day or two and it's bite-sized um, content that you can consume very quickly and it'll give you a little nugget of identification knowledge or use use knowledge or equipment knowledge or philosophy or just an update on what i'm up to something to look out for if you're interested so please do follow me there remember to turn notifications on so that you make that you do see everything that i post on there not just things that um Instagram chooses to show you because remember they're going a little bit more like Facebook who own Instagram in sort of trying to um, run an algorithm that shows you some posts more than others depending on how popular they are or uh, um, how many other people have liked them. So if you want to see my stuff go over to Instagram Paul Kirtley here is my handle Paul Kirtley go to Instagram type that in you can find me you can follow me and you can turn notifications on and say hi and it'd be good to see you there so thank you for listening if you've got more questions about water that weren't answered today it doesn't mean they'll never be answered send in your questions send in your general questions and i will look forward to answering them on a future episode of Aspore Kirtley. and with that wren chattering away in the background i'll leave you and say goodbye for now. Take care, enjoy the outdoors. And an owl. Don't know if you heard that on the microphone. Yeah, this is kind of like, not quite an outtake, but I've already said bye, but it is a lot darker than it looks. I'm just looking at the screen on the side of the camera. It, the gain's gone up. It looks lighter than it actually is. It's after seven o'clock it's getting dark I've got an owl going over there and um, 
time to finish for the day. So, um, goodbye.